0: So today marks the beginning, the entrance of Victory Baptist Church into the new year. And someone would like to get in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Logan, can you open the door? Oh, never mind. It sort of remains to see what kind of a year this is going to be for Victory Baptist Church. We as Victory Baptist Church began a journey a few years ago, first a journey through the book of Exodus, then a journey through the Gospel of John. God put his glory on display for us to see through the salvation of Israel from Egypt. And then he put his glory on display again for us to see as Jesus, our Savior, took on flesh. And became a man. The eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We spent two years beholding his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But you know, we're gathered together this morning. We're Christians. We, in truth, if we are members of Victory Baptist Church, then then we've actually been looking to Jesus for quite some time now. We've been looking to him since the day we first believed in him as our Savior. And so in this sense, although we have seen new things in the book of Exodus, we've seen new things in the Gospel of John, we're not actually beholding a new Jesus. We've been looking to this Jesus since we were first saved. But as we move into a new year, as we move into a new study in the book of Hebrews, We're about to get really practical about what it means to live as a Christian. Since we are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus, what should our lives look like? How should the person who is looking at the glory of God in the face of Christ live? How should he behave? That's the burden of the book of Hebrews. This morning, we're not going to begin the book of Hebrews. Instead, We're going to consider the Christian life from the book of Galatians. Every year I like to start off the new year with a special sermon that kind of helps us prepare for a a big vision of the year ahead. Who are we? Where are we going? What, What are we doing this year as we begin 2024? I want to turn our attention to our identity in Christ We've heard the call of John to believe in Jesus, to have life in the name of Jesus. We trust in Jesus as our Savior. So what does this mean for our life together as a church? Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 28. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to churches who are being tempted to earn their righteousness by sheer grit and determination to obey the Mosaic law. The song that we just sang, justified, glorious thought, sanctified, salvation wrought, We hope for our glorification when we see our Savior. These Galatians, they were justified. They were declared righteous by the grace of God, not by obedience to the law. They received the righteousness of Jesus by faith because they believed in Jesus' righteousness. They believed that was enough for them. And because they believed they could not earn their own righteousness by their good living. But now they're saved. Now the Galatian church, the Galatian church is, they're a saved group of people. But there were teachers who were coming into the church telling them that the righteousness of Jesus is all fine, well, and good to start the Christian life. But if you're really going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a good Christian, then you have to keep your salvation by obedience to the Mosaic law. It's as if somehow by obedience to the law, we could earn God's favor. Often we call this legalism. In the process of warning the churches of the danger of this legalistic teaching that was infiltrating the church, Paul explains the gospel, the true gospel, and how salvation gets from Jesus to you. He writes in Galatians 3, 27-28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This morning we're going to consider the gospel, the, the righteousness of Jesus that comes to us. And we're going to consider how the righteousness of Jesus affects our lives individually and how the righteousness of Jesus affects our life as a church family. My hope and prayer this morning is that because we see Jesus clearly, because we understand our relationship with him clearly, we will be encouraged and we will be challenged personally to find our identity in Jesus, and then to live out that identity with one another. My prayer is that we lose our self-identity and find our identity in Jesus as the body of Jesus. We're going to consider this text from three different angles this morning. First, we're going to consider the righteousness of Jesus, how the righteousness of Jesus gets to you. This is the teaching of what we sometimes call union with Christ. Second, we're going to consider what the righteousness of Jesus looks like in you. And this is the teaching of identity In Christ, And then third, we're going to consider the righteousness of Jesus among you. So the righteousness of Jesus to you, in you, and among you. And this righteousness of Jesus among us is the teaching of being members of the body of Christ. Look with me, first of all, at Christ's righteousness to you. We have union with Christ. Paul writes in verse number 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do you become righteous? You and I are dirty, rotten sinners. We have spent our whole lives in willful rebellion against Jesus. How can God look at you and me and instead of seeing dirty, rotten sinners, instead see a perfectly righteous person? How can that happen? Well, there have been a few different answers to that question throughout the history of the church. Some people have answered that question by saying that the waters of physical baptism have somehow mystically or spiritually washed us clean of all of our sins. These people have said that it's the act of baptism itself as some sort of a, a mystical power that cleanses us from sin. Well, others have said that baptism is not enough, it's a good starting place, but if you really want God to look at you as a righteous person, then you need to actually be a righteous person. So if you, want to go, if you want God to look at you and see you as a righteous person, you need to live a righteous life. That righteous life begins with physical baptism, usually as a baby, but it continues through a life that's basically, morally speaking, more good than bad. By the end of your life, there's surely still need for more cleansing because, let's face it, unless you're a bona fide saint, God looks at you at the end of your life and says, you're not really righteous yet. There's still some cleaning up that has to happen. There's still some purging that needs to happen. And so God sends you to a place of purging after you die. It's called purgatory After you've been there for a while, God will finally look at you and see that you are righteous and he will allow you into his presence. But Paul gives us a different answer. When in our verse Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, he's not referring mainly to the waters of physical baptism. It's not water baptism that grants you the righteousness of Christ. In the previous chapter, in Galatians chapter 2, and verse number 16, Paul wrote that yet we, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but notice this through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the work of the law, no one will be justified. The righteousness of Jesus comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So back in our text in Galatians chapter 3, when Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... He's talking about a baptism that happens when we believe in Jesus as our Savior. He's talking about a a washing that happens not to our physical bodies, but to our souls. That point in time, when you first began to believe in Jesus as your Savior, as your righteousness, that's the dividing line between when God looked at you as unrighteous and when God began to look at you as righteous. This baptism is a mystical, spiritual baptism. It isn't a water baptism. The water baptism comes later. The baptism of water is a public declaration. It's a public picture of that truth that already happened the moment that you believed in Jesus as your Savior. God began to look at you as righteous when you first believed in Jesus as your righteousness and your Savior. The Spirit of God baptized you into Jesus. He united you with Jesus the moment that you believed. And ever since that moment, God has looked at you and seen not your unrighteousness, but the righteousness of of Jesus. But notice again what Paul says in our verse. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, when God the Father looks at you, it's not as though he sees Jesus over here, sort of like a a defense attorney in the heavenly courtroom, while you're sitting over here in the dock somehow magically wearing the the righteous robes of Jesus because you believe in him as your savior. No, 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 Paul says you have put on Christ. You have been united to Christ. God doesn't look at you over here and Jesus over there. The righteousness of Jesus is not something that can get passed around some sort of heavenly courtroom. It's not a treasure guarded in some treasure chest up in heaven and handed out like coins to impoverished sinners. No, no. Jesus brings you off of the dock. He brings you to himself and he hides you in himself. The righteousness of Jesus comes to you because you are united to him you have put on Christ, Paul says. It is, though, it is as though Christ and his righteousness is the garment with which you are clothed. When I read these words, I think of a, a picture that comes to my mind from the Chronicles of Narnia. In, in the book, The line the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, they all discover this world inside of their uncle's wardrobe at their uncle's house. In this world, it is always winter and never Christmas. And as the four children go into the world through the wardrobe, in the wardrobe, before they step into that world, there's all these great coats a great coat is sort of like uh, a trench coat, only it's a lot more comfortable. It's a lot thicker. It's got kind of this fuzzy woolen collar. You've probably seen it in like the old World War II pictures or something. So these were adult overcoats. And the children put on these overcoats before they stepped into this world of winter. And the overcoats just kind of swallowed the children up in them. That's sort of the picture that comes to my mind as I read these words you have put on Christ. This is your new reality. You are in Christ. When you feel like it and when you don't, when you live up to it and when you don't, this is your new reality. You have put on Christ. This is fundamental reality for you. It is the fundamental truth which is now lived out in every aspect of your Christian life. This new reality affects everything in your life. It is the foundation for everything in your life as a Christian. Everything else that we consider this morning depends on Christ's righteousness to you. Christ's righteousness lived in you, Christ's righteousness lived among you, only comes because of Christ's righteousness to you and your unity with Christ. So, you have been united with Christ. Consider the first area of application of this truth. You have been united with Christ, consider Christ's righteousness in you. Consider with me. Our identity with Christ. This is what Paul deals with next in our text. Again, Galatians three twenty-seven to 28, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says that if you have been wrapped up in Christ, if you have put on Christ, then your identity has radically changed. You see, before we were saved, we were caught up in our identity from a human perspective. Notice Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. This is an ethnic, or what some people call a racial division. And Paul says that where there was once racial division, there is now racial unity. Consider the implications of this for a moment. We live in a moment in history when our society is trying to teach us to establish and base our identity as individuals on race or ethnicity. For example, we're told that whiteness is a thing, that blackness is a thing. And these identities determine, or they ought to determine, the way that we see the world around us. We ought to understand our oppression or our privilege on the basis of ethnicity. But Paul is saying that these ethnic divisions have been torn down by the cross of Christ. Consider the implications of what Paul is saying. Paul is going to put it this way in the epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 16. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, which is made with the hands in the flesh by hands, Consider the logic of Paul's words in this text. Paul is saying that there was a wall of separation that divides Jews from Gentiles. And that Christ on the cross tore that wall down, creating one new man. Creating the church as the one body of Christ. Think about it like this. If ethnicity, or race, is the identity by which you define yourself as a Christian, then what you are saying is that there needs to be a black Jesus, and there needs to be a white Jesus, and we have to have a Hispanic Jesus, and you need an Asian Jesus too. If ethnic identity is not abolished in the cross, then everybody needs their own Jesus. Do you hear the scandal in that idea? Brothers and sisters, the righteousness of Jesus in you is your new identity. Paul goes on in Galatians 3. He says, there is neither slave nor free. This is a civil union, a a social unity. Human society naturally divides itself, stratifies itself socially between the the haves and the have-nots. We see those who have money as powerful, and so we pander to them to try and get what we want. We see those with little money as irrelevant, and so we either pity them or we ignore them. James, the brother of Jesus, addresses this very issue in James chapter 2. He writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you, are really, fulfill, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Our identity as Christians is not and must not be in our social standing. Whether we're rich, poor, slave, or free, those things do not matter. You have a new identity Do not make an idol of your wealth. Do not make an idol of your poverty. Those things are not your identity. Christ is your life. Christ is your identity. Consider the third contrast that Paul makes. He says, There is neither, uh, there is no male and female. So just as ethnic differences and social differences may factor into our personal identity in the world, so may our sexual identity. As we consider Paul's words here, we are standing not only on the near side of Black Lives Matter and critical theory, but we're also standing on the near side of the women's liberation movement and over a 100 years of feminist ideology. And we may be tempted as those who breathe the air of Western society, to buy into the lies of society, which tell us that there's a certain vision of humanity, a certain vision of how people are divided not only along ethnic or sociological lines, but also along gender lines. But Paul here makes a radical statement, reminding us of the language of Genesis 1.27, where God, male and female, he created them, Paul is now telling us we belong to a new creation where we do not base our identity on our gender. Instead, our identity is in Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. Paul is not making a sweeping statement regarding Christian life and structure in the home and the church such that there is now no difference between men and women at all. Paul makes it very clear in other contexts that God has created men and women God created them with particular strengths to fulfill particular roles both in the home and the church. God didn't do something wrong when he created men and women with different genders. The roles that God gave men and women in the home and in the church of leadership and nurturing, those are good. God's creation structure that men lead through love in the home and in the church is for the good of the home and the church so that everyone in the home and the church may thrive. God's creation structure that women follow the leadership of their husbands in the home, that they exercise their influence through the nurturing in the church and in their home. This is for the good of the church and the home, so that everyone in the church and the home may thrive. And yet there is this reality, there is this respect in which we as Christians, growing in sanctification and holiness, among us there is no male and female. We must not promote chauvinist ideas of manness in the church, identities causing division on the basis of being a man. We must not promote feminist ideas of womanness in the church, identities causing division on the basis of being a woman. Though we recognize there's proper order in the home and church, we also recognize our identity is in Christ, not in our gender. Jesus didn't need to die for men and for women separately as though we are two different kinds of creatures. No, he has united us in himself through the gospel, and as it relates to our growth in sanctification and holiness. There is no male and female. So thinking about these categories, how do you view yourself? What's your identity? Who are you? As you consider the gospel, as you consider who you are as a Christian, it is absolutely essential for the unity of our church that you find your identity not in ethnicity, not in social status, not in gender, but in Christ. You enter this church as a Christian among Christians. We build one another up in the body of Christ as Christians among other Christians. Not as white people among other white people. Not as rich people among other rich people. Not as men among other men or women among other women. We gather as Christians to encourage one another as Christians in the word of God for the glory of God. Christian, your identity is in Christ. Jesus is working his righteousness in you. So we have this truth of our union. With Christ. It comes by the righteousness of Jesus. It comes to us. It is applied to us when we believe in Jesus. We've applied this truth to our identity in Christ. Jesus is working his righteousness in you by granting you a new identity. But the righteousness of Christ does not only affect our righteous standing before God. It does not only affect our Identity uh, within the church as, as it relates to ethnicity or whatever else. Consider again Paul's words in verses 27 and 28. Particularly 28, there is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ's righteousness is not only at work in you, it's at work among you. You are now a member of the body of Christ. This means that Jesus is working out his righteousness among us, among you as the church of Jesus Christ, as the body of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are all one in Jesus Christ Or, to to put it in other terms, the fact that we are the one body of Jesus Christ is a necessary part of our union with Christ. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be reminded once more that there is one loaf, symbolized by that one bread that we break and share among us. In other words, just like you now have identity, you have the identity of Christ. And it would be a scandal to imagine that we need a white Jesus, and a black Jesus, and a rich Jesus, and a poor Jesus, and a man Jesus, and a woman Jesus. So it is scandalous to imagine that we all need our own individual Jesuses. To say that there is only one Jesus is to say that there is only one body of Jesus. There is only one church. We Christians are the body of Christ, exactly because we have been united to Christ. So this truth that we are united to Jesus and therefore united to one another as the body of Christ, this has some amazing applications for the life of the church. But it can all be summed up with one word. That word is love. Paul is going to say in just a few paragraphs, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Do you hear that word? Paul is intentionally picking up our key text in verse number 28, and saying that the application of chapter 3 and verse number 28 is our life together, faith working through love. Our lives to one another, with one another, among one another, are committed lives of love. Paul then says in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is saying there are two possible ways to live with one another. The first is consistent with our new identity in Christ. We are Jesus's. We belong to him. We have his righteousness. So, we ought to live with one another through love serving one another because we belong to Jesus. But there is another way that we could live, Paul says. We can choose to live according to those old worldly identities. We could live according to the flesh. That is a possibility. In which case, what does Paul say? You will bite and devour one another. Those are the two options. Those are the two ways of life. But there's only one that reveals the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. The truth of our union with Christ is revealed and demonstrated by our love for one another. The reality of our faith is revealed through our love for one another. And this is a real love. I was once talking with someone, and he was telling me, Pastor, I love you, and I love everybody over at the church. (laughs) And I said to him, how would they know that? We haven't seen you in church in years. (laughs) Love is a word that we kind of just throw around, as though it means sort of this warm and fuzzy feeling, or it means I'm not actively angry at anybody right now. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about love. Listen to the way that Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians. You know this text well. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, this kind of love that Paul is calling us to is a very practical love. It has a genuinely unifying effect on the church. Do you remember how Paul described the diversity of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? This is that text where Paul says, we're all different parts of the body, and the eye can't say to the ear because you're not an eye, you're not part of the body. You remember that? Uh, the text that, you know, if everyone, was an, if everyone was an eye, where would be the smelling? Well, I think we'd be a smelly group anyway. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 22 to 25, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Just thinking really practically about how this pans out in the life of the church. Think about the roles of men and women in the church. God gave men and women different roles in the life of the church and the home. God has called men to be servant leaders of the church and the home. God gifted women as nurturers, cultivators of life, in the church and the home. So men, we must not use our role of leadership to suppress the voice and the influence of women. The world is not a men's club. Instead, we must look for ways to help boost the voice and the influence of the women in the church and the home. It's true. Scripture tells us that by God's design, women may not teach or exercise authority over a man. It's in the same kind of context that Paul will say to the Corinthians, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. But Paul's words in both of those texts are explaining what it means for men to have the responsibility of spiritual leadership. However, this is super important. Listen very carefully. Paul is not saying that women may not speak in the church. Paul is not saying that women are prohibited from opening their mouths in the morning worship service. And men, this is where our responsibility of leadership comes in. As leaders, we ought to look for ways to give our women opportunities to use their gifts in the church. It would be an easy thing for us to simply run the show and leave women in their own little corner. But Paul expects women to be involved in the life of the church. He expects women to be involved in the gathered worship of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he gives very specific instructions that women are to be praying and prophesying in the church. Ladies, he doesn't prohibit you from praying. He expects that you will have opportunities, and he gives instructions for it. Women, your voice is needed. Your influence is needed. As you have opportunities to use your gifts and your influence in the church, your church needs you. Your questions and your observations in Sunday school are needed. Your service and your encouragement during Sunday morning worship is needed. Your public prayers and prayer meeting on Wednesday night is needed. Your input, your questions, your advice in business meetings is needed. Men, listen when you come in the doors of the church listen. And if the only voices that you hear are male voices, then as a servant leader, it is your responsibility to give voice to the opinions, the observations, and the questions of the women in your life, whether you agree with those questions and observations or not. Ask, what are your thoughts? What do you think about this? How would you do this? Older folks, the same principles are true as you're relating to a younger generation that is growing in our church family. And younger generation, the same is true with you, with the older folks. If all we hear are older voices or all we hear are younger voices, we are missing the balance of the unity of the body of Christ. It takes intentional effort to go out of our way to serve one another by speaking up, for the voices and the opinions and the questions and the observations, which we otherwise might ignore. When we speak about the righteousness of Christ among us, when we speak about our life as the body of Christ, these are examples of what this looks like. We all are joint heirs with Christ, of equal value and worth as image bearers of God, Though we certainly honor God through different giftings and different roles in the life of the church and the home, but we must use our different roles and our different gifts to help the whole body grow together, not to divide the body of, the, of Christ into, into different groups and based on identities. Brothers and sisters, please allow me to encourage you to be committed to this vision of the body of Christ among one another this year. There is a beauty in this kind of covenantal commitment. There is a beauty in loyalty. Neil was sharing with us on Wednesday evening that in a couple of months, he and Betsy are going to be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Isn't that cool? There is a beauty in that kind of a covenant commitment. In the same way, there is a beauty that cannot be imitated when the body of Christ is doggedly committed to one another, even though they don't necessarily agree on everything. There is a beauty to patience and kindness and gentleness, even when there are honest disagreements. And to be fair, dishonest disagreements, because we're all still battling the flesh, aren't we? Every single one of us. One of the things that I want to impress you with this morning is the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ, our head, who is our righteousness. The beauty of the body of Christ, which is the church growing in that righteousness. There is a beauty because of the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is giving us his own righteousness by uniting us to himself. We are united with him and nothing can ever Take us away from Christ. He has given his righteousness to us. But not only has Jesus given his righteousness in union with him, but now he's working that righteousness out in your life and in our lives together. He has given us a new identity. He has given us himself as our new identity. He has torn down those old identities, those old things that used to separate us from one another, and he has given us a new identity. He is working his righteousness in you, and that is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when you reject the labels and the identities of the world when you reject the pull of your own flesh to return to those identities, when you renounce those things and cling to your new identity in Christ, that is a beautiful thing. Not only that, but Jesus is working his righteousness among us. Because he has united us to himself, he has also necessarily united us with one another. We are the body of Christ. And it is a beautiful thing when we are doggedly committed to loving one another for Christ's sake. Even in times when we are hurt and offended by one another, it's a beautiful thing when we are slow to take offense and always ready to seek reconciliation. I love that line because it convicts me almost every single day of our covenant with one another. It's a beautiful thing when we, through love, serve one another. Do you see this as beautiful? Do you want this kind of beauty for yourself and for your church? There's only one way that we can have this beauty for ourselves. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. It's not the first time that Paul says that. Back in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, the life which you now have, the life which you now live, is not your personal life. The life you live is the life of the body of Christ. It is the life you live by faith with me, and it is the life that I live by faith with you. We live this life for Jesus. We live this life in his righteousness. My plea to you this morning is to join me this year with this kind of a covenantal commitment for the glory of God and the good of the church, the good of our fellowship of believers. Father, we're gathered.